Immersive audio podcast. In conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, brought to you by 1618 Digital. Today, host Oliver Cadell is joined by the Senior Director of Research and Development at DTS, Michael Kelly. At DTS, Michael leads a team who develop and optimize next-generation spatial audio algorithms for games, VR, music, and film. Today, Michael discusses the work carried out at DTS, new technologies, and his role in the Audio Engineering Society. Good morning, Michael. It's good to have you here today. How are you? Yeah, I'm great, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I'm quite excited to, to do this. Okay, well, um, I would like to ask you first about your personal experience, and can you tell us a bit about how you got into this industry? Yeah, sure. It was kind of a weird pattern. I think I came at it from lots of different directions, not quite at the same time, but, but at different periods. So it probably starts in the cliched way that I, you know, I always played computer games as a child and um, I think I wanted to know a bit more about how they worked and I learned, I taught myself to program myself and my brother on a spectrum and then I think from there I ended up trying to make games, never published anything but when I was kind of 14, 15 on, on a Commodore Amiga and I applied to Ocean Games in Manchester because I thought this is a, a really cool job, this is what I'd love to do for a living, how cool would that be? And they pretty much flatly said we don't really hire um, we're a very small company. And so um, I think that, as far as I was concerned, was the end of my games industry career. And then I, I went to university to try and figure out what to do with my excitement in terms of audio. And audio for audio's sake, not kind of like necessarily music, but just sound itself and making cool sounds and probably more synthesis and effects and sound effects than, than it was music. And I didn't really know how to make a career of that. So I went to university, did electronic engineering. For some reason, I didn't officially do music technology, but I ended up doing all the music technology modules. And then I did my PhD in uh, psychoacoustics, audio coding and binaural audio. And, and thought probably my career was going to go much more in the direction of research. And then just as I finished my PhD, virtually on the day I did my Viva, actually, I got asked by a company in York called Revolution whether I knew anything about computer games and sound for computer games and whether I'd be interested in helping them out in post-production on uh, Broken Sword. And it also happened that one of those games I was playing when I was kind of 15, when I should have been doing my homework and preparing for university, was Broken Sword. So it was a game I loved in a domain I loved. And uh, yeah, so it, I think the start of my career was more opportunity than everything, than anything else. From there, I think I'd, I'd suddenly thought I've got a PhD in psychoacoustics and now I'm smashing cabbages against walls and, and dropping microphones in, in canal locks um, to get all these cool sounds. Am I ever going to use that PhD knowledge again? And I think after that point, I kind of, I didn't want to stay in York any longer and I was looking for jobs um, in sound design, probably more towards London and other areas. And I was getting a lot of good feedback and, and the game reviewed very well for the sound design. But every job I went for as a sound designer were like, well, you know, we'd be interested, but 
there's a much greater need for audio programmers on our team. It seems you know about programming too. So I kind of went down a more audio programming route. And then it, it, I think it all came full circle when I came to DTS. The role I was recruited for was in uh, spatial codec development. And so my PhD was um, a third of it was in audio coding. The rest of it was psychoacoustics and binaural audio, which were all relevant. We know that um, at that time we were developing what it wasn't called DTSX at the time, but it was the beginnings of it. And so we knew that that would have applications outside of just basic um, cinema or movies, the, the traditional domains of DTS. And so my expertise in games, my understanding of tool development and interactive audio engines was was all relevant, uh, as well as sound design, because I, I work now with quite a lot of different sound designers. And so really, I think all my different experiences in game audio, for want of a better, wider domain, all came together at DTS. And so I don't know if it's a route I could recommend someone else follows, but uh, it, it's certainly how I got here. So yeah, I, I just one of those lucky people, I think, who's who's doing what they love doing and, um, and and managing to use most of their skills. They all come in different bursts, but generally, yeah, I'm happy. This journey definitely sounds really exciting and diverse across various disciplines in the industry. I was going to ask you if you could uh, perhaps talk about DTS, what DTS is about and um, what its unique selling point to our audience uh, for those who haven't come across the, the format of the company um, before. Right, okay, yeah. So um, I guess in its historical sense, DTS starts as a um, really a codec for, for delivering high-quality soundtracks to um, the cinema industry. So I think one of the, the very early investors was Steven Spielberg, and uh, he wanted to, to really mirror the high-quality that he'd done with the graphics for Jurassic Park. So it was pretty groundbreaking. No one had ever seen such giant dinosaurs at such a level of realism. And I think he wanted to make sure that everyone who saw that in cinema had sound quality to match. So he invested in DTS as a company that um, would would deliver what he expected from the audio. And we went from there really, um, being quite quite strong in the cinema. Um, a, a lot of movie theaters for a long time had a, a DTS logo on the door. Um, and you'd see the DTSI then at the start of films. From there, we became the mandatory format on Blu-ray. And so pretty much every Blu-ray disc has got a DTS soundtrack in one form or another. Obviously, the world is changing now. That, that industry is really important. Digital cinema is an, an important part of DTS's business, but um, obviously expanding with virtual reality, augmented reality, um, and, and just more and more expectations from consumers about what they want from audio in the home. Um, has meant DTS has, has had to and managed to keep up with, with trends. So our latest technologies like DTSX, Headphone X, uh, uh, are kind of not necessarily consumer brands, but the type of things you will see on the back of boxes. We sell um, our technologies really to, to uh, OEM manufacturers, large device manufacturers, big brand names like Sony, Onkyo, Yamaha. Yeah, it makes a lot of headway in that domain. I think the, the latest chapter in DTS's history is probably the most interesting one, where we were, were bought by a similar size firm called Tessera and um, became rebranded, really, and, and became a, a whole new company, Xperi, which encapsulates all the excitement and technology from DTS, but also brings in, um, particularly from my point of view in R&D, access to a lot of technology that, that just was you know, something other people did a long time ago. So machine learning um, and image processing been really key, um, exciting areas for me as a director of R&D. So, so now having the opportunity to bring lots of different technologies together is, is really 
I think, um, DTS's future or Xperia's future. Could you perhaps expand a little bit more on, um, you know, direct link um, of DTS's products uh, with immersive audio and perhaps like in, in relation more current trends such as VR, AR and how does it all connect? Right, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think... Um, I don't know if it's fair to say DTS's journey starts like this. Certainly my journey with DTS started, um, I don't know, about six six years ago when I joined. The, the reason um, I was recruited was to work on DTSX, which was an immersive audio codec and is now um, an extremely successful codec. At that time, I think nobody really knew things like VR and AR. They were definitely research areas of interest to us and actually fueled the development of some of the headphone technologies that, that we did around DTSX. So my original role was to develop the headphone rendering and spatial rendering aspects of, of the DTSX decoders. From that, we concentrated a lot of effort on headphone rendering and were aware of possible future roles in things like games or this weird concept of VR that nobody really knew what it was. And so we developed um, headphone rendering with that kind of stuff in mind. And then I think DTSX was always designed as a very forward-thinking, open-minded specification that was also backwards compatible with all our other codecs, so we didn't leave any um, redundant devices in our wake. So I think we one of the things that probably makes DTS different is quality has been a large driver for us since day one and still remains to be. And I think trying to drive the cutting edge, there's a lot of talent in R&D that um, really work towards making things better than is necessary so that maybe five years down the line, people that we can we can solve problems that we didn't even know about, but more close to what we do now, people are getting a better quality experience. So I think whilst we never, I, I think it'd be unfair to say we designed our technologies for, for future reproduction environments like AR and VR, they, they certainly have now found a real home in those spaces as well. So DTSX as, a, as an independent codec, if you like, as a way to, to transport cinema audio is working well in its own right. Getting that object-based audio, immersive audio, um, in a flexible way into people's homes is all there. But um, the opportunities for AR and VR, combined with our headphone rendering, which is, I think, where we have real opportunities for immersion, those are the, uh, yeah, I think that's how it all plays into immersion, really. How does the DTSX object-based codec is then utilised by content developers, producers? Is it available as part of set of offering tools or is it a piece of hardware that um, the, the audio needs to be processed through in order to then be distributed in, in a certain way? Can, can you expand a little bit more about how that mechanic works? Sure, yeah. So, so DTSX in, in, in its kind of narrowest form is a transport stream. And I think everything else around it is, is how you get something into that format, which is probably what you're asking about, and then how you reproduce that format. So starting at, at the content producer end, it, we realised that, um, that that's really almost our most important part of the chain in terms of, of that's where it all begins. So we invested a lot of effort in tools development. Um, so we, we, we produce our own tools that we provide, um, particularly to movie studios, and then on the more kind of interactive side, we have um, various plugins for various interactive development environments, um, whether those be game engines or more sophisticated digital audio workstations or whatever. And the other aspect of it is we realise we, we don't want to lock people into a particular way of doing things. So the fact that we, we have a, a broad view on tools anyway is important so that we understand different people do things in different ways. But uh, a large part, I think, of our authoring side of things was... was um, a more professional end format 
which is called MDA. So this is an open standard for uh, representing an object-based audio in production workflows so that you're not bound necessarily to what DTS think you should be doing in terms of authoring. If other people want to produce proprietary distribution systems for the production content or proprietary tools or, or open tools, they, it, it would be perfectly acceptable to, to, to write um, custom MDA authoring tools. So I think on the content end, our vision is more enabling as many people to create high quality content as possible um, with minimum restrictions. And then on the reproduction end, I think it starts with the traditional kind of business model, which is um, AV receivers. So if people have um, sophisticated speaker playback systems in their home, that we can give them the best listening experience with DTSX um, by decoding it. But because the format's really flexible, it can adapt to different listening environments. And then I think more importantly, it also lends itself very well to different types of devices. So if you suddenly switch to headphone playback, we can we can bring in some of the headphone X high quality audio rendering that I mentioned. Or, I mean, if you want to go to, to a different extreme, it will render very nicely on a soundbar as well. So you'll see a lot of televisions and soundbars with DTSX logos on because they incorporate the decoder. So I think the idea is that the format itself is very flexible. And the vision behind the format is to represent content in a sophisticated, simple, or as simple a way as the content producer would like. And then on the playback end is to be able to take that flexible bitstream and render it in the way the consumer wants to listen to it. And I think um, we, we've already seen, you can go now and find lots of products with lots of AVRs with headphone X or DTSX logos on and headphone X logos, in fact, as well as soundbars and um, hardware peripheral headphones as well for, for applications like game. So. Brings us nicely to the next question. So DTS claims that headphone X brings new life or surround sound within headphones. Could you please talk about the, the unique features of this technology and how, how does it work and how does it translate for like an everyday consumer? I guess being very close to the R&D, it's hard to, uh, to, to come up with the single benefit to the user. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll talk more from my perspective about, about what headphone X is, and then hopefully that will give you a sense of, of why we think it's, it's, it's beneficial to the consumer. Um, well, actually, let me start with consumer. I guess from the very foundations of DTS, it's all about quality. So I think what we believe is we have the highest quality headphone reproduction. And what that means to us is a very clean, timbre neutral headphone reproduction as far as you can, but a very natural and high quality reproduction. So spatially, we believe that we can we can give pinpoint accuracy on sound. The reason the reason I can be confident about that a little bit is I work a lot with people who use it and, and feed that back to us, game developers, 360 video content producers, and, and even from actually some of its first uses in the movie industry, the, the feedback we got has been incredible. On the more R&D side, how we got to that is I think we took a fundamentally different approach to, to what other people have done. Firstly, myself and, and the entire team I work with um, largely come from the games industry. And so um, we're games players. We, we know what we want out of an interactive audio experience. And we also know how games are made, so we understand the constraints. So what we did with Headphone X really is, I think traditionally other people tend to start with a bunch of filters and they're maybe trying to replicate HRTFs by increasing the orders of the filters and then maybe add in some kind of simple reverb on the end to give a, an externalization feeling. I think, and slowly you build things up till you hit your CPU limit or your, your CPU quota. And then, you know, for whatever device you're employing it on, and that's where you stop and, and that becomes your defining headphone experience. When I joined DTS, when we first started on the project, 
the approach I wanted the team to take was that we we threw everything we had at it and we decided if CPU limit was an option and setup time, like being able to, to make something that, that sounded great wasn't a problem, we could dedicate time to this. What's the very best headphone experience that we could reproduce? Um, and we built something we called the magic trick, which, which is where we can, in the right conditions, we can put headphones on someone and convince them that the, the, the headphones aren't playing the sound, that the sounds they're hearing are from speakers. And we did that on a, a wide scale in um, Las Vegas at CES. I think about five years ago, and the audience reaction to, to a group of people who, you know, we'd not tuned their HRDFs or anything was phenomenal. So I think what we where we started with what's the potential of headphone listening? And then everything else has been engineering challenges to get that in a, in a consumer space. So how can we get the CPU cost down? How can we reduce the requirement to have things like personalized HRTFs? How can we give a sense of spaciousness without actually having a full room modeling system in place to, to re- reproduce the environment you're in. And so I think, um, again, coming from games, we realized that even to do that convincingly from a practical side of view, there's still a high CPU hit. So we spent a lot of time with a lot of expertise we have on, on team engineering this into something that we know um, in a game application could render hundreds of 3D audio objects with a minimal CPU hit. And I think so starting with high ambitions and then scaling back the engineering has led us to, to get the quality that we can get. And again, there's, there's now games out there like um, Elite Dangerous using the technology. There's headphone peripherals out there um, that I think in the early days, they look a bit more like your traditional surround sound headphone. But as the technology evolves and the requirements for VR and AR evolve, I think you're going to start seeing some of the, the, the really cool features of Headphone X coming out. For our listeners, uh, what would be the easiest way to experience these headphones? What would you recommend? Where would people can go and check it out for themselves? Um, so there's in the kind of surround sound headphone style, like gaming peripherals, there's a lot of headphones out there um, now that support Headphone X. So you can go and um, search for Headphone X and Headphone X headphones and you'll probably find some good peripherals. I don't want to call out any specific brands. Um, we, we, we have a lot of good partners who are making some good high quality headphones. Um, other ways are, so I mentioned Elite Dangerous, which is a game that features the technology. There's, there's quite a lot of forum posts about how people have felt it really immerses you in the game. So that's, that's, that's a kind of, we don't normally sell directly to, we, you know, we wouldn't promote our technology directly through um, game developers. Um, but in, in that case, that, that was a chance to see how a, somebody like Frontier could really push the boundaries. So um, Elite Dangerous, I, I will probably call out um, as, as a good example. But then um, I think there's a, there's a large number now of Blu-ray soundtracks that actually feature Headphone X on it as well. And if you select the Headphone X option in your Blu-ray player, you can hear the movie mixed in Headphone X. There's a lot of different ways to, to check it out. I'm not a marketing person, so I, I, I should have had a better list prepared, but I, I hope that gives you a flavour. Um, you're also chair of technical committee on audio for games and vice chair for the technical council at Audio Engineering Society. Can you tell us a little bit more about your involvement with uh, those two organisations? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'll start at the the lower one in the chain, which which is the the more practical aspect of what I do. I'm co-chair of the technical committee on audio for games, and the purpose of that committee is to drive the AES's technical involvement in that area. So that I think there's there's around 20 technical committees with different specialist areas, um, all with different chairs. And um, the role of the technical committee is to make sure uh, that the AAS is um, 
performing correctly in those domains. We're publishing the right information. We're gathering together the right groups of technical minds. We're, um, we're making standards, white papers, running conferences, all in the area of audio for games. And they're not looking at that in isolation, but thinking how that fits into the bigger audio picture, um, how we work with other committees, how maybe um, an orthogonal committee to games might be automotive. There wouldn't naturally seem an overlap, but though maybe something like audio networking there is more an audio an overlap because one's more of a, a mechanism and the other one's more of a um, commercial area. They both relate to each other. But even with things that do seem orthogonal, like other commercial areas like um, broadcast or automotive audio, the the gap is becoming narrower. And so part of the AAS's long term goal is to make sure that you know all these things that start off as separate industries actually have the right technical engagement with each other um, to make sure that, that um, the AES is contributing everything it can to getting the best um, for the world in terms of sound. So my, my, my role kind of unrelated but slightly above that is that I'm vice chair of the Technical Council. The Technical Council is the, the body which oversees the technical committees and, and ensures that they all collaborate and produce the right kind of output. So um, I think the, the model we use is the Technical Council is seen within the AES like the CTO of the AES, um, looking at the technological aspects of, of the AES as, a, as opposed to more kind of organisational aspects or um, publications aspects or whatever. We were very productive in some of the achievements we had on the uh, Technical Committee for Audio for Games. And so I think I was given the opportunity to, to help some of the other technical committees through the Technical Council um, build on, on that kind of growth and success. And, and so um, I was asked to do that, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago, probably more actually. Um, and uh, yeah, very, very exciting role to hold. Fantastic. Michael, which project that you have been involved in in your career are you most proud of and why? Oh, wow. Um, I guess there's actually a few. They're different projects in different ways and different levels of my own involvement. So I think... Broken, working on Broken Soul was actually amazing because it was it was a game I played as a child and then to see that launch and to have been part of it, that's that was a real pride moment. So I think that was my first and big one. But then uh, later on in my career, working for Sony Computer Entertainment, as it was then um, on the PlayStation, and seeing some of the great titles launched and being there for the launch of PS3 and PS Vita, I think they were proud moments, but obviously they're... They involve a lot of people, and my claim to contribute to any of those is very small. But probably, I think the biggest was when we when we did that demonstration I mentioned in Vegas was with the magic trick. We were trying to show the potential for the technology by showing people that we could make them believe they weren't listening to headphones, and watching people's faces genuinely have that reaction and 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 be shocked at what they were hearing, and knowing that it was myself and a very small. Um, group of colleagues that, that made that happen. I think that was a real pride moment. And of course, now it, it's a, it's a full on product and um, there's a lot more people involved, but in its very early stages, that, that was a great, a great moment. So what's in store for DTS in 2018 and for yourself personally? So 2018 for, for I, I think probably for the company and I should be careful what I say, but I, I imagine Purely on the DTS side, seeing, seeing the growth of DTSX, I think we're already seeing it um, exponentially um, grow. We're, I think we're in over 500 theatres now. We've got a whole, over 100 movie titles, and that's just increasing all the time. Personally, for myself and the team I work with, I think 2018 is going to be a big year of, of research progress for us. We've got some really exciting things on the horizon, So, um, particularly in the field of augmented reality 
And um, as I was mentioning earlier, it's not just now for us about sound. It's about how we bring together all our different technologies. So I don't know. I'm excited what stories I might be able to tell or not at the end of 2018. Let's, let's see what happens. Fantastic. What would be your one piece of advice to a young aspiring person who's perhaps listening to this podcast right now, uh, who's trying to get into an industry and is pursuing career in gaming, AR, VR, whatever direction that might be? Wow, I think it's a great time to be doing that um, because the barrier to, to being able to produce applications on your own um, is now really low. So I think we'd, we'd have a minimum expectation of somebody new coming to the industry that they could probably have the skills to create an interactive experience. So, And it's all free to be able to do it. So go and figure out something like Unreal or Unity. Figure out how to put a level together, how to put sounds in it. And then I think... The way to accelerate that, which which is most useful to industry, is start on your own because you've got to get up the learning curve. Once you've figured it out on your own, find other people to work with, make free games, put them online, or or just work in a team, work in a diverse team, work in a, a team that's um, spread across the globe in different environments. And the reason for that is nobody these days really works in isolation. Um, I think in the old days, you know, you could there wasn't an internet, you couldn't communicate with people. But now you can get online, you can program with other people. Not only are you learning to work with people and, and keep your mind on what's important, you're also benefiting from their experience too. So learning things that can't necessarily be taught in the classroom. So, so it's a chance to do work experience without ever being employed. And so I, I think that that's where we expect entry-level candidates to be now, that, that they've had collaborative programming experience and understand the workflow of a game you don't need to work for a game developer to get that anymore i think that's a fantastic piece of advice thank you (laughs) yeah i just wish all that stuff existed when i was trying to make games on my own but um world is changing fast new opportunities and new challenges at the same time (laughs) yeah exactly michael kelly it's been a pleasure thank you very much for your time thanks very much t bye-bye bye-bye You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast. This episode was produced by Gillian Duffy and Giacomo Corpino and included music by Nobs Bergamo. Thanks for listening. Listening.